This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and every fourth Sunday of Easter, we refer to it as Good Shepherd Sunday because one of the, uh, the re- one of the gospel readings in John's gospel is read on the three-year cycle where Jesus is referred to as the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd is the earliest depiction of the risen Jesus or of Jesus in Christian art. So if you go to Italy and you go to places like Ravenna or even in Rome, you'll see uh, mosaics and paintings of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. It's only about the 6th century that we begin to see Jesus uh, portrayed on the cross. And the earliest portrayal of Jesus on the cross is in an inset panel on the door of Santa Sabina Church which is right across the street from the Pansione I stayed in for six weeks in 1975, right near the Roman Circus, you know, where Ben-Hur, you know, Clivo di Publici numero due. I still remember the address. And uh, right next to it was San Anselmo, the Benedictine, worldwide Benedictine center, and then Santa Sabina across uh, the street, which was run then by the Dominicans. So it's been around... I have to tell this story. I was only in my, I guess, my early, middle 20s. And the, the, the Pansioni was run by Camaldolese nuns. But since they're contemplative and re- some of them recluses, they had a lot of late women in there who ran the Pansioni. And they said, if you're going to be out at night late, we lock this thing up at 9 o'clock. So they said, but you can get a key if you give us these many thousand lira then. And you can have a key and you can let yourself in and that's fine. So uh, I thought, well, I better get myself a key. And I go downstairs and there is a uh, sort of like a little office place where one of the sisters is on duty to pass out keys and to do stuff like this. So I knocked on this sliding thing, and the, the door slid open, and there was this absolutely drop-dead gorgeous sister on the other side of the uh, novice. She had the novice habit on, and I looked at her like this, and I, so I started to say in some sort of version of broken Italian. She said, I grew up in Brooklyn. What do you want? (laughs) I said, okay, I need a key. (laughs) Slam. So I was able to, I was able to get in. So the idea of of Jesus as the good shepherd probably is is a very compelling uh, image from a whole lot of, for a whole lot of reasons. And in my sermon today, I want to talk about two readings, the reading from the book of Acts and then the reading from uh, John about the Good Shepherd and to say some things about this particular version and how we might understand it. But I want to preach about Acts because it is a reminder now that this, for example, during Eastertide, 50 days, is the first Sunday we're not reading a resurrection appearance. And we're beginning to see in the epistles and in the first reading stories about how the church is beginning to appropriate the Easter faith, how they're grappling with the pastoral realities on the ground, how they understand themselves uh, to be constituted, 
and uh, what the early uh, New Testament church was like as it moves from Jerusalem now to Rome. Remember that the same person who wrote Luke's gospel wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. So Luke has a particular idea in mind about what he wants to uh, talk about in the book of Acts, the history of the first Christians, the history of the early church. And there are some things that he has in mind. Here's what Luke wants to do in Acts. To defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion, to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission, to vindicate the part played by Paul, to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. So he's, today Luke is talking about some earmarks of the early Christian church and what they did. So it is a community that is first of all absorbed in religious teaching. They're interested in hearing the stories in the beginning of the great tradition with a capital T both in the sacred literature and in their common life together. You know, this is, I, I'm mentioning this because nowadays most of us appropriate our religious views, if we have any, uh, subjectively. We're, we're, we live in a culture that's what works for me. So the idea of thinking about something outside yourself that may be true or not true, regardless of what you think about it, is less important than how you internally uh, begin to, to uh, deal with these deep truths. But this was a community absorbed in the religious teachings, something about the tradition, what is being passed along about the mighty works of Jesus Christ, and how have individuals, through their experience in this process, felt some species of transformation and new life, and therefore compelled to speak about it to other people, to say, this is the location of my greatest place of safety and assurance. So they were a community absorbed in religious teaching. They had regular fellowship in social, in social and religious gatherings, and this kind of sharing in the New Testament is also a synonym for giving, for stewardship, and in 2 Corinthians, uh, we see Paul take up this theme and speak of it in the same way, but more directly connected to that idea of generosity and the sharing of one's material possessions. And the third earmark is active care for one another. And this is the part in today's reading that prompted me to preach about it, because this is the section that said all things were held in common. Do you mean... There was socialism in the early church. Socialism. There's a lot of people that are pretty exercised these days about socialism. I thought we'd sort of pass through that in the 60s and the 70s, you know, and then Russia goes zunk like this. And uh, socialism, ay, 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 you know. But there are a lot of people who are concerned about all this. I remember a interview. This is way off the subject, but... It, um, Gorbachev was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And he's talking about saying, you know, we're now at about 1985 or 86. And he and Edward Shevardnadze, 
who went from Georgia, they went back. They are in the Kremlin and they go out of the buildings. They're all bugged. And they go somewhere and they're standing on a bridge in Moscow. And Gorbachev turns to Shevardnadze and says, this thing is over. It's on its back. There, it's collapsed. What are we going to do? So, you know, I don't know. The kind of socialism that's being talked about here isn't that, you know. Is it true in early Christianity that all the Christians, in a highly idealized way, shared all their goods in common? No, it isn't. And in various parts of the Christian world, there were different views about how they understood this comment in the book of Acts. One of them was is that you should be engaged in charitable works. And that in some way you should be concerned about how people uh, interact with one another, even outside the church, in terms of the generosity of spirit. But what Luke is talking about here, because of his own thought world and what he knows, is something about what the Greek philosophers talked about, like Plato and Aristotle and other of the lesser known ones. There was a proverb or a little uh, maxim that was uh, abroad in Hellenistic culture and Greek culture. For friends, all things are common. Somehow we understand uh, the community uh, of faith to be in some way a community where there is mutual sharing. And that you and I, as we understand it today, since, you know, the church isn't the only agency anymore, or perhaps even the smallest, or smaller of the, of the ones that do this, isn't the principal uh, per group that uh, deals with uh, reaching out in love and concern and care for other people. At one time it was. There were no hospitals before the... Christians began to build them. Now we have all of this. So you and I need to say, well, if that's true, how do we partner with all of those agencies and organizations that are laboring uh, to create a society where it is easier for people to be good? And how are we always on the side of those who are the most vulnerable in this culture? And this perhaps is the biggest challenge that's in front of us today. Because there are many people who believe that, you know, we ought to be uh, on the treadmill of, you know, everybody's for the, everybody for themselves, and you need to just uh, either sink or swim by your own efforts. And, you know, sometimes people get jammed up because uh, they're in circumstances that, they, that were not of their own making. Everything isn't of everybody's own making. And so when we think about the wider culture, we need to be in favor of thinking, well, let's not uh, pick on the most vulnerable. This is, a, this is a thing about that. They began to understand this mutual care. There's some uh, documentary evidence that in Rome, uh, not very long after the writing of this, sometime in the first part of the second century, uh, the, the Roman Christians were, were looking after f over 1,500 widows. Just, just one area where they were um, concerned about uh, helping people who were in somewhat of a vulnerable condition. So they knew from the get-go that that was something that they needed to do. The early Christians that Luke is describing were steadfast in prayer. This means the keeping of the Sabbath, keeping of the Sunday, worshiping in common as something that was done on a regular basis. 
And through that, the feeling that there is a spirit of oneness, a spirit of unity, uh, one with another. Luke is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And he understands the Holy Spirit before all of the elaborate writing about the doctrine of the Trinity. He would understand it, as, as a theologian would say, as unitive being. The Holy Spirit is the glue that holds us all together somehow in unity. When our spirits change internally, we somehow uh, influence one another in a positive direction. And there is a spirit that's held in common in a community that's firing on all eights. So this is a description, perhaps not of a historical reality, even at the time of Luke, but a church on its best behavior. And I've said to you more than once, if there's a, if there's a group of people who ought to be idealists, it's Christian people. And so we have seen in the historical record that when the Christians in whatever part of the Christian world have done some or all of these things, even for brief periods, uh, they have flourished and they have made a difference in the world. You know? There's a lot of fear in the church these days uh, about uh, the changes and the way in which people embrace their spiritual lives and the, the way in which we've understood church and do church and so forth. And so, because we live in America, in my view, we get success and faithfulness uh, confused sometimes. You and I are not called to be successful. We hope to be. We're called to be faithful. And that is a continuous discovery as we're on our spiritual pilgrimage, just precisely what that means. So this is what, in the book of Acts, we, we set up. This is sort of the predicate for now how Christians understood themselves, even in the most idealistic fashion, uh, moving forward. John's gospel today, I'm always, this particular uh, gospel from John always is a little daunting for me because this was the, the gospel, the section, that I had to translate into English from Greek in my beginning Greek class. And I made an absolute pig's breakfast of the translation. Father Edwards goes, uh, you are taking the second semester. Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, yes, I, I am. But I read read this, and I thought to myself, here's something that pops out. The Good Shepherd, the idea of the, the pastoral images that are in this gospel are some, is something that, that's important. But in all of the Good Shepherd uh, gospels in John, or the ones that vaguely refer to this, we have the implication or the suggestion, uh, and certainly it's been interpreted by many Christians over the ages, of um, uniqueness, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there are a lot of Christians now, including some in the Episcopal Church, who are extremely annoyed that there are other Episcopalians or other Christians who perhaps stand at a critical distance from an overweening acclamation of that view. 
the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ and the necessity to tell everybody that they're fooling themselves if they don't think that this is the way to do this. So I got to thinking about it this week, and then I remembered uh, in Dr. John McQuarrie's book, The Principles of Christian Theology. He maybe was the most famous Anglican theologian or one of them in the late part of the 20th century. And he talks about the, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ uh, in this section. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. Therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity which he has brought to a new level and the nature of God. For this is an for expressive being has found its fullest expression in him. McQuarrie talks about the Trinity God as primordial being, the Son as expressive being, and the Holy Spirit as unitive being. So in philosophy, that's what he's talking about when he uses these descriptions. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. So for me, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I understand him to be the definitive focus of the divine presence. But I'm doing that on faith. And those who I think uh, in the correct way, if I may say that, uh, believe that's how they would say that and understand it. Instead of getting into a wrangle with people and say, well, it's a shame they're such a nice person. <laughs> they are so not, you know, it's a terrible thing for me to say that uh, when they die, right? Because that's what it means if you start talking that talk, right? Uh, it's better to speak, perhaps, provisionally about these matters. Remember, too, that in the time of the writing of John's Gospel, Jesus Christ for the Johannine community was, for them, the definitive focus of the divine presence, and they were engaged in major philosophical and theological controversies with the Judaism that they're coming out of now and who began the process of exclusion and excommunication from their synagogues. And so we, be, we have some unhappy phrase, turn of phrases in John's Gospel about how this is operating. People uh, were copying a big resentment about a lot of that stuff. 
So that's always the sort of thought world in this that you have to understand. Jesus as the definitive focus. So this week, I think, uh, give thanks for the definitive focus of the divine presence in your life and for the great shepherd of the sheep who knows each of us by name and unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. If that isn't an Easter message, I don't know what is. Amen. Amen.